welcome to season two of the Your Brand, Your Story podcast, hosted by Megan Ingram, founder of digital agency, Ingram Digital Consulting. We're bringing on a unique selection of 16 diverse marketing guests in season two to tell their stories. We talk with brand leaders and agency leaders to freelancers and entrepreneurs, featuring voices from brands like Pearl Vision, Public.com, and nonprofits, Teach for America, and Salvation Army. This season is all about brand storytelling and how you can create connections, campaigns, and community through the power of stories. As the Chief Advertising Officer for Supreme Optimization, Eric Southwell manages a team of 12 to provide a measurable ROI on over 100 different accounts across Google AdWords, LinkedIn, and Facebook. He has over five years experience in managing digital advertising campaigns and is considered to be one of the top B2B PPC specialists. Today, he joins the podcast and he shares his digital nomad adventures and LinkedIn paid media optimization tips and tricks. How's it going, Eric? Great to have you. It's going, it's going well. I usually say it's going good, but I believe well is like the correct way to say it. Uh, it is going well. And uh, thank you very much for having me in the, in the kind intro. Yeah, no problem. It's great to have you on. Well, you know, to kick things off, you know, I always like to start off with like people's stories in here and kind of about their backgrounds and journeys. And you do have an interesting and unique one. So talk a little bit about how you ended up as a digital nomad and about your path to chief advertising officer at Life Science Digital Marketing Agency, Supreme Optimization now. Yeah, um, th- this answer I'll go a little bit more in depth to because I-, I do think it's somewhat interesting. Um so I started much more traditionally. So I actually, out of, job, out of school, I got a job in downtown Chicago working in management consulting. And um, it was uh, like something that I was really proud of when I graduated college. It's kind of like the dream job. Like everybody works their butt off so they can get management consulting or go work for the big four or whatever it is. And uh, I basically spent like two years working 12 hours a day, like coding these really complicated people soft systems for hospitals and and uh, big universities and stuff like that. And I got really depressed. I wasn't sleeping a lot because on the weekends, you know, I was 25 in downtown Chicago. So on the weekends, I would party with my friends and then I would be like three hours of sleep flying to San Francisco and then taking a red eye back. And I got like really sleep deprived. And I was like, I don't care like how high profile this job is or how much money I make. I'm just so unhappy and I need to leave. And I had a friend who was working from home and um, I said, Hey, like, I just good friend. I'm just like, how do you get to work from home? I wasn't fishing for a job or anything like that. And uh, we talked for like two hours and he ended up being like, yo, we can hire you. We have this like absolute lowest of the low entry level bottom feeder job, but you get to work from home. And it was a third of what I was making in Chicago. And, um, I was like, done, I'll take it. And so I basically got a job. I didn't even really know what the company did. And it's pretty funny. Uh, the company was a dating advice company and <laughs> they sold a product called the girlfriend activation system. Oh, wow. And yeah. And I was their affiliate manager. And so I managed all of the people who like sent this offer out to their email list and stuff like that. And it wasn't really the right fit for me in terms of like, uh, the industry. Um, but I basically understood digital marketing after working there for about nine months. And I was like, one of the things I noticed is that the biggest checks I was cutting as an affiliate manager was to the um, the media buyers. So the people who were really good at PPC and Google ads and Facebook ads. And I was like, 
you know what? I'm like 25, 26. Like I can learn this, you know, it's not too, not too hard. So I bought this like $40 Udemy course or something like that and started teaching myself Google ads. And then I started hitting up friends. Like my buddy owns a, a dentistry in Austin. And I was like, Hey, like who's running your Google ads? And he's like, Oh, we have this company doing it. And I was like, well, can I match whatever they're paying? And then I'll run it. And he's like, sure. So I just started hitting up my network and getting a couple really small deals in the practice. And then after I got a little better, um, I messaged my buddy Sheldon who runs Supreme. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hey, do you guys have, he did SEO and built websites. And I was like, Hey, do you have anyone who does PPC? And he's like, no, we have a few accounts, but I kind of like just outsource it. And I was like, Oh, can I come run it? So he paid me $15 an hour, which like he wasn't really making any money on these deals. So it wasn't like, you know, he had a bunch of money to give me and I wanted to get paid to learn. And so I was, it was like the best opportunity ever for me. So I went in making 15 bucks an hour and then eventually I got 20 and eventually I got 25 and then I got put on salary. And, uh, but for me, I got to work from home and now I'm still at Supreme. It's been like six years now. And, uh, right now we have like, 12 full-time PhD strategists who are um, helping us run these accounts. We have over 200 accounts between Google, LinkedIn, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's grown quite a bit. And then I also have like a side agency where I run a lot of traffic and stuff like that as well. So yeah, that's kind of my quick life story. <laughs> no, and I love how that how it shows how flexible and like how you can make your digital marketing career your own. Like, there, you know, I love hearing stories like that where you kind of, you know, found something that you thought could be a skill and kind of turned it into a career. So that's really cool. Yeah, I agree. And just kind of like adding on to that point, I think a lot of people are really scared to make a a hundred percent pivot, you know, where it's like yeah. you go from, you know, I was doing like operations and tech consulting to all of a sudden I'm a digital marketer doing Google ads and stuff like that. It's just completely different, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's something where, you know, I put in, I measured all the hours of learning and I put in like 250 hours of Google ads learning in like three <laughs> months. So I, and I hired an, an accountability partner to kind of help out and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, it was like the best decision I ever made. And honestly, this digital marketing stuff, it's not that hard. Like anyone can go from knowing nothing to knowing a lot in a really short period of time relative to like, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, like yeah. those are like multi-year barrier of entries. But you can, you know, have a really good living doing digital marketing and the learning curve is low and they don't teach it in college. So the supply of people who have the skill is low as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I also like to like, you know, I've been in digital marketing for over 10 years and I can tell you like five different types of digital marketing that I've done just even yep. between like paid media and strategy and analytics and, you know, like there's all these various different career paths. So even if like paid media isn't your thing, there's a lot of different directions you can go with it. Yep, 100%. Completely agree. There's no one path to becoming a digital marketer. I've seen and I've heard a lot of different people's stories about how they became to be into digital marketing, how they got their first entry. And what I really love about Eric and other stories like him is that, you know, he was unhappy. He wasn't in a career that was really making him feel motivated and he just wasn't being his best self. And so he looked inward and looked at the things and the skills that he does well and found something that worked for him. So, you know, I really encourage other people out there to, it's not just one thing, really take a look at what are the things you like and what are the things that you don't, and maybe it's digital marketing, maybe it's not, 
But when you look at those things in that way, it can often lead you down paths that are just really exciting. So, you know, you have, you know, a fun uh, digital nomad story. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and kind of talk a little bit about what you enjoyed the most from your digital nomad experiences and some of the lessons that you learned. Yeah. So after I kind of got solidified with, you know, a core group of clients and, you know, I would say I was not making a ton of money, maybe like $3,000 a month or whatever, when I had some retainers and I was making my 15 bucks an hour, I was like, well, this money goes a lot further in, uh, Indonesia and Morocco and all these other places. And I basically didn't resign my lease. I was living in Austin at the time. And I was like, I'm just going to go backpack. And, um, you know, I think one of the big lessons there is just how much further your money goes in other countries and how strong the US dollar, I'll say is and maybe was we're we're printing quite a bit of money right now. But I mean, at the time, um, you know, and still today, if you go to Indonesia, and you have $3,000 a month income, you live like a king out there. I mean, your meals are a dollar or two. Same in Mexico. I mean, there's so many places you can go. Um, So I traveled the world for about four years total. Uh, I think I've been to about 40 different countries. Uh, I've been to most continents. I haven't been to Australia or Antarctica yet, um, but I've been to pretty much every other continent, um, all the major countries I've been to. And um, I just, you know, traveling is is just kind of like in my DNA. Uh, It's something where like I can never sit still in one place for too long. And I love just being out of my comfort zone and doing it. It's just kind of like who I am. It's, it's, not something I had to like really actively push myself to do. Um, it's just like, yeah, it's just kind of like who I am. And then um, in terms of another, you said lessons learned, right? Like, yes. I, is that what yeah. 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 Um, I feel like I had, I learned a lot of like really big things. And I also learned a lot of really dumb things um, that like, I probably should have realized and didn't need to travel to do it. Uh, one thing that I think is pretty interesting though, is that being American is like getting a cheat code in life or just being dealt like pocket aces and poker. And I didn't realize this until I traveled. Like your passport gets you everywhere and every single country speaks English because that's how they make money because that's where all the tourism dollars comes from. So even if you're in Bali or something like that, like they all, all the people you talk to, like they speak English. If you're in Ecuador, if you're in France, like they might not love speaking it. They might appreciate if you spoke in the native language, but like everyone speaks English. And also I didn't realize how restrictive other people's passports were. Like when I was in Morocco, I was talking to like my friend Mohammed, uh, who I met there. And he was like, do you realize like how amazing it is that you're American? He's like, my, my Moroccan passport can't get me anywhere. Um, and I didn't realize that he's like, yeah, I can go to like three countries without having to go through some crazy border patrol. Like, why are you here? Like, And so I think if you're American, you're so fortunate to be able to travel and to be able to travel easily, both with your money going far and also being able to speak English. Those are things I never would have never, ever occurred to me in my entire life unless I traveled. So, um, and then I'll say one kind of stupid thing that you might be like, duh, Eric, how is this a lesson that you learned or whatever? Um, (laughs) But how foods in different cultures and geographic regions are representative of the available resources. Like, I know that sounds really dumb, but yeah, like, I mean, that's you know, interesting. when I go to Peru, they all eat ceviche. Like ceviche was the thing you could get for 50 cents on any street corner because they just have this <laughs> abundance of fish and lemons, you know, and like, yeah. uh, and, you know, when you go to India, they have all these spices. So they make these like curries with all these turmeric and stuff like that. When I was in Morocco, the fruits were like amazing. 
Um, same in Israel. Israel had great fruits like figs. And so I've grown an appreciation when I go to the store now and I look in the produce section and I'm like, where did this fruit come from? Or like, no wonder, avoc- no wonder avocados are $4 here. We have to import them. But when I was living in the Canary Islands, I have an avocado tree in my yard. And that was like dropping a hundred avocados a day. And I thought I was the richest person on the planet. And so <laughs> I've actually grown a, like a big appreciation for like trying different foods. And I love so many different cultures foods. Like one of my favorite foods is Ethiopian food, actually. Yeah. Um, I'll say one I of the things Ethiopian. being in Washington DC is I've even domestically have been able to try a lot of different foods just from being here. And I love what you're saying. Like trying different foods in, in new places is, is, is an awesome thing. It's amazing. And uh, I mean, you're lucky because you live in DC and that's one of the reasons why people love DC, New York, LA. It's like you have this abundance of culture and with that comes like really good food. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think I've grown a new appreciation for food, uh, which I think we all love food. Um, yeah. So those are kind of like, I mean, I could go on for hours about all the things <laughs> I learned, but those are just like a couple stupid things, a couple cool things about some things I learned. I'm not going to sit here and list for you all the reasons why I am personally a big advocate for pro work from anywhere and digital nomad lifestyle. But as he just explained in his own story, and there's many others like there out there that have had just incredible journeys from being a digital nomad, so to speak, it really is an incredible opportunity if your organization allows you to take advantage of it. To really, you know, not only just as a digital working working professional, but also as an individual and as a person, you just learn so much. And so, you know, it was really cool for him to share some of his own experience about the things that he learned from a culture perspective while he was away and some of the ways that it's just really is this incredible opportunity if you're lucky to be able to work from anywhere and be a digital nomad and to really just take advantage of that. Awesome. Well, give me one cool story from your digital nomad experience that you'll never forget and why. Yeah, this this one was tough. Um, I thought a lot about this because I've had like so many amazing experiences. I mean, like Oktoberfest in, in Munich is was a blast. Um, and I mean, I've seen the Northern Lights when I was in Norway and doing cruises and stuff like that when I was actually in Norway in the winter was really cool. Um, you know, I think the best experiences that I always come to mind are like, they kind of fall into two categories, maybe three. One is like just being astounded by nature. Uh, that always is like huge. Um, the other is like the people that you meet. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I just found I was like the most happy being really deeply ingrained and like really awesome kind of like cultural experiences. And then I think the last one is whenever you're alone and have these long moments of solitude and kind of overcoming a big challenge. Like I did this hike to a top of volcano when I was in, um, when I was in Indonesia and I, when I got to the top, I just started crying because the sun was rising. It was like a grueling 12 hour hike. Um, and I guess I'll tell the one specific story that, that really jumps out to me was I was in Indonesia, Bali. Um, I was actually uh, by myself completely. I did, I did a lot of solo travel and I got scuba certified down there and I was living in like this tiny little Island in this tiny little hut by myself for four days. And every day I dove twice a day and it was like the most amazing coral reef. And I saw so many different 
like underwater animals and like when you're underwater you just feel like you're in an alien world almost and they and they don't care about what's going on above surface you know there's no wi-fi down there so it's not like you're updating instagram every two seconds you're just in this like complete meditative state and in this complete world that will continue to exist even if we don't and has been around for you know millions or thousands of years depending on what the species is and um I was just really proud of myself by the end because I was on the other side of the world and I spent a lot of time journaling and reading and I got scuba certified and, and I, I just think about that all the time, like just how special that moment was. And it was this combination of like being alone and overcoming obstacles and, um, and you know, that's like my parents were never adventurous. They never really left Wisconsin either. So it's kind of like doing something that I've never done before and kind of overcoming. So that's like my one thing. And, and now scuba is something I do all over the world. So huh. uh, that was, that's kind of one of the many things that stands out. So that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. Well, I want to talk, you know, obviously you mentioned you spend, you do a lot in the paid media space. want to talk a little bit more specifically about LinkedIn. Give, a, give me a few tips that can set apart your LinkedIn paid media strategy. Absolutely. So I will give, what I think is the number one best tip for LinkedIn. And this is going to be like the best thing you can do, the thing to avoid, whatever. It all rolls up into this. So the number one most important thing with LinkedIn is making sure that you're even supposed to be on LinkedIn in the first place. And so the thing is, is like with Facebook, with YouTube, with Google, you can be a lot of different types of businesses and make it work. You could be a dentist and work on all three of those networks. You can sell sunglasses and be on all three of those networks. You can, you can be selling dog toys and be on all those three networks. But for LinkedIn, unless you have a minimum deal size of around $15,000, there is absolutely no purpose of you being on LinkedIn because the minimum cost per click you're going to pay on LinkedIn is $6. The average is 10. And so unless you have these really big deal sizes. So, you know, if you work in construction or you sell really heavy machinery or like our clients will sometimes sell these million dollar microscopes, those are amazing for LinkedIn. And you can't, you don't really want to go on YouTube to sell a million dollar microscope, right? So yeah. um, the biggest mistake I see people making is their price points are just not good enough. And, and you know, that gets back to the whole B2B thing. It's a true B2B yeah. network and it's that great for great. that. Yeah. So. That's honestly number one. Number one hack is like, make sure you should be there in the first place. Goals and objectives matter. Anytime you're talking about anything related to paid media and digital strategy, it starts with really examining what is it that you're trying to achieve. And especially as it relates to the larger of objectives of awareness versus acquisition. Are we interested in driving more quality social followers to our page? Do we want to drive people to our social profile or to our website? Is conversion more important than awareness and engagement? And really drill down to figure out what are those KPIs? How are we going to define success for this campaign? It starts there for any LinkedIn strategy. And then you can talk about all the various tactics and get a lot more specific about optimization and testing and all those key components of a campaign. But it always starts with, what do I want to achieve? Awesome. No, and I and I think that that's well said. I mean, in my my experience, similarly, 
B2B is generally how, you know, it's a better channel than most B2C brands. Um, and again, I think the deal size is, is a right on point. Uh, it's what that, what that revenue cost point is going to be to make that, that cost worth it. Yep. A hundred percent. Kind of looking at the opposite side, what would you say are some common pitfalls that you find that prevents people from really being successful on LinkedIn and triggering growth and success? Yeah. I mean, I won't spend too much time rehashing what I said because I just said it, but like, honestly, like I, 90% of the time people shouldn't be there and that's like the core problem. But I would say after that, another really big thing is, um, it's another 30,000 foot view thing. It's like understanding your offer because I would say another huge problem I see with people making on LinkedIn is that they go right to a sales call. So they're like, all right, like my deal sizes are big. Yeah. My audience hangs out here. Uh, that would probably be the second thing. I'll talk about the audience in a second. And then the next one is like, all right, I want to get these guys on a sales call so I can talk to them. I'm like, yo, like these people on LinkedIn, they're minding their own business. They're not on Google and they're not typing like buy new microscope from my lab or something like that. For they sure. could be looking for a job. They could be scrolling through their newsfeed. They could be updating their LinkedIn. Um, they can be sharing stories or reading news or something like that. And so if you come out with them, they're like, hey, do you want to talk to a sales about a microscope? They're like, no, that stuff never works. And I've tried it myself for our own business. I was running a Google ads audit on LinkedIn, perfect audience, great offer for them, but it's too high friction. Like they're like, I don't, I know I'm going to have to talk to you on the phone. I don't want to do it. So what works extremely well instead on LinkedIn is running some type of webinar or PDF, like lead with a ton of content and information and yeah. use the lead gen forms to capture their information and then warm them up on your email list or reach out to them once you have their email and once they had a chance to kind of download and do that. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest pitfall I see people making is, um, is just that it's, it's, they're running to a sales thing and that stuff just, it, it's not fun, especially as an agency person. Cause they're like, all right, I'm going to spend my $5,000. And it's like, okay, we got two leads for the 5,000. I'm like, yeah, but I told you, but we could have gotten 500 leads, you know, for yeah. if we did the ebook or the webinar and those would have led to sales, you know? Yeah. You know, I had a recent healthcare client, similar thing. It's like, we've kept telling them mid funnel, mid funnel, mid funnel. And, you know, they wanted to go with the high level offer and immediately we switched. Oh wait, now there's like 200, 300 leads. And it's that, you know, it's like you're saying, it's that people want content and you can get a lot more mid funnel opportunities that you're going to nurture, drip, et cetera, rather than kind of giving them, oh, hey, I want to get a trial. I want to get, you know, I want to be on a sales rep call. I want to book a meeting or, you know, those types of things. Don't propose before you court. <laughs> it's I'm gonna I'm gonna go basic principles of life. All right, don't propose before you court. So often we want to put the high level offer, the ultimate prize, in front of people first before we have the conversation, before we nurture them, before they understand who we are and what we're about. Right? You wouldn't propose to a girl or a guy on a first date, right? So it's the same idea when we're talking about acquisition and nurturing, right? You need to have someone understand who you are and what you're about. And when we're talking about media targeting, that extends itself into why we, especially on LinkedIn, put mid-level fun funnel offers out there before we put the ultimate prize, right? Create the conversation, get an email, and then figure out whether it's email marketing or your sales team 
or find the right party within your organization and you nurture the relationship that way. It's a much better and effective strategy for ultimately delivering more high quality leads than you're going to see if all you care about is, oh, hey, we're just going to continue to beat and beat this high level sales offer on their face. And you know what? It doesn't work. 100%. I think if you do those two things right, where it's like you have, you're, you're supposed to be on LinkedIn in the first place, high price point B2B. And then if you have like a really good mid funnel kind of offer, irresistible offer, mm-hmm. um, those are your two most important things before you ever get started with LinkedIn. And then I would say there's tons of little hacks after that, you know, to kind of boost performance and all of that. Um, but those are the two most important things. And then, yeah, I guess on that note, the other thing is just making sure your audience hangs out there. You know, a good example of an audience that a lot of my clients want to target is doctors. Like yeah. they're like, Hey, we want to reach out to doctors. I'm like, doctors have no reason to have a LinkedIn. They have 20 job offers when, as soon as they're done with school and whatever it is, and they don't need a LinkedIn profile, they're not interviewing like crazy and stuff like that. And they have zero free time. So it's not like they're going to make LinkedIn in their spare time. Those are really tough to target on there. So just making sure your, your audience is active and a part of LinkedIn, I think is another really important thing. Awesome. Those are, no, those are all really great points. Now you touched on, you know, at the beginning a little bit about Supreme Optimization. I want to talk a little bit because I do think they have a really unique vision to life science brands. Talk a little bit about what one, how they are unique and how they target life science brands and what the most rewarding thing is about working with these types of companies. Yeah, for sure. So I would say um, it's good that I kind of led with the story when I was making $15 an hour because I got to Supreme and I was like, all right, I'm ready to run, you know, traffic for you guys. And like, okay, can you do keyword research? I was like, oh, absolutely. And I go to their website and their products are anti-rabbit P53 monoclonal antibody. And I'm like, what is that? Like it almost might have, it should have been in Chinese because I didn't really know what it was. And so I was doing it by myself for a long time and it was unbelievably challenging. I was up to like midnight, just like Googling what these things were. And I still wasn't doing a great job. And so I posted an ad. And I was like, hey, I'm looking for a PhD who has life science experience who can help me out with this Google stuff. And I hired my first PhD like four years ago. And she was great. Her name was Mahela. She's still with us today. And she basically went through and did all the keyword research with me. And then she helped me write all the ads. And so I brought her on client calls with me. And clients were like, oh, this is so cool that we have someone who understands our products and services. And then I just had this like kind of aha moment where I was like, wait. Like, why don't we just hire like a bunch of these PhDs? These are awesome. And so then I started posting jobs. I was like, anyone who works in, who has a PhD in a life science related field, and if you're sick of doing research, I'll teach you digital marketing from scratch. And it's a compelling offer because it's actually quite difficult to get out of research. And getting a, a tenured professor job is extremely competitive. And there's a lot of luck involved. And it's not fun when um, you don't have as much control of your destiny. And even if you work super hard, you can't get that job. Yeah. Um, And so I have all these people who are like, I'm so sick of bench work. I would love to learn a new skill. I'd love to work from home. And so I put them through like a three to six month gauntlet where they get their Google ad certification, their Google analytics certification. And now we've got like 12 PhDs who just run ads for us full time. And it's one of these things where no other company can provide that. And so we have that kind of niched uh, approach with it where like... um, the sales, pro- the sales process is really easy for us. So 
I would say the most rewarding thing for me and the companies I work with is, I mean, one, these, these are the companies who are making vaccines or making therapies for cancer. Like I take a lot of pride in doing a good job for the companies that I work with. Um, so that's great. But I think the most rewarding thing for me is just working with these genius level PhDs. Like I really love everyone I work with and they're so smart and they're so hardworking and they're so kind. And I just love my team and I love the people that we've brought on and, and I've gotten to meet and work with and, you know, call friends and coworkers and whatever it is. So yeah, that's the most rewarding thing to me is just building that team and, and working with really great people. That's awesome. No, that, that's, that's really cool. Taking that to the other side, what, what's challenging? What are the pain points? What, what can be tough about working with these types of brands? Um, compliance is always really tough in the life science industry because they work with a lot of things that get disapproved on Google. I think compliance is tough in any digital marketing industry. I'm sure you face this all the time with yeah. uh, Facebook accounts getting shut down. Um, so I think compliance is, is particularly challenging. Um, we get flagged for a lot of speculative and experimental uh, treatments and stuff like that. Like we have the word stem cell in there. Google's like, oh no, this is bad. You guys are selling stem cells. When really that's not what the company does at all. They just have that on their website because they research it or whatever. Um, so compliance is challenging. Um, you know, the other thing is that we take people who know nothing about digital marketing. So there's this lag between uh, when I hire someone and how long I'm paying them and then when we make money on them. And yeah. so hiring is hiring and training is is always a big challenge. Um, yeah, I, I honestly think th those are the big ones. Sales and marketing isn't a big challenge for us. We're, we're quite good at that, but it's just hiring, training, and then compliance can just be such a nightmare sometimes, you know? Yeah. No, and I would echo that the, the compliance part of it can be, can be tricky, especially, I mean, I've found, especially on LinkedIn sometimes because the things they flag, you're like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so frustrating. <laughs> Well, last question um, to close it. What is one LinkedIn trend that is really top of mind for you right now and why? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot going on with LinkedIn and I'm going to save somebody a lot of a lot of money and a lot of time. And the big trend with LinkedIn is that they are trying to basically clone Facebook with lookalike audiences. Because the thing with Facebook is yeah. As soon as you start getting some conversions, you're like, all right, lookalike audience, United States, go do your thing. And, and the Facebook algorithm is so remarkable that you just start bringing in sales for clients. And it's, it's really impressive. LinkedIn is horrible. And the reason why is because LinkedIn has one ten thousandth the data of Facebook. People don't spend much time on LinkedIn. They spend an enormous amount of time on Facebook. And the targeting on LinkedIn is already so laser precise. Like for me, I run campaigns for our agency on LinkedIn. I target everyone who works for a biotech company who has a marketing, uh, who works in marketing and has a seniority level of senior or yeah. above. So it's like senior managers, CMOs, directors, VPs. Why would I need a lookalike audience? I literally, that's all, that's all I want to target. So I see a lot of people go in and they use the lookalike audiences and they get absolutely burned because they're so bad. So um, my, my big thing I see happening in LinkedIn is a lot of people using the, the new-ish lookalike audiences and just getting absolutely crushed. Um, I do think one thing that is a little exciting to me is the new conversation ads they rolled out maybe six months ago. Yeah, I've um, actually tested them with a client in the healthcare space. 
And and did how did it work out? Is Not it was particularly it good? great from a conversion standpoint? From an engagement yeah. standpoint, there's definitely you can make cases. Um, yep. But it was tricky in trying. And again, here we get back to the high level offer versus the mid funnel offer. They're try. I think, in my opinion, they were trying to make it too high, and therefore yeah. they weren't hitting on any of the the key KPIs that you'd want to hit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll tell you this: like, if you want to run LinkedIn successfully. Mind those three things we said earlier with uh, it, LinkedIn being a good network, check that box. Having a good middle funnel offer, check that box. Having a great audience, check that box. And then on top of that, if you run sponsored content and you use a lead generation form, your chances of success are like 90% plus. But if you do the direct message conversation to start, um, those are more places I'll scale because people will be like, all right, how do we scale? And I might be like, honestly, we're hitting your audience over the head on sponsored content, but we could also get them in their inbox, you know? Um, so the conversation ads are exciting to me just because they're rolling out cool new features. Um, I've had similar success. They're not super, super effective unless it's for an engagement purpose. So, yeah. Yeah. Like again, like I, I could give you all the like awareness engagement metrics, but if you're looking at this as I want to convert, the only thing I care about is CPL. I don't necessarily think it's the right play for, for brand in, yeah. in my opinion. Completely agree with you. Awesome. Well, again, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, love sharing all the LinkedIn knowledge and digital nomad stuff. Um, and it was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, may I make a shameless plug for two things at the end here? Yeah, sure. Okay. So one, if anybody wants to learn more about LinkedIn, um, I do have a course called Bulletproof LinkedIn Ads. It's on adskills.com, which probably a lot of people who listen to this are familiar with adskills. I think they're the largest online traffic school. Um, I'm a guardian in adskills as well. So if you are a part of like the, the pro league and in our Slack channel, I can answer any of your LinkedIn questions. Um, and the course I made there is pretty comprehensive. And I'm adding a case study to it probably this week or next, which is good. And then uh, the last shameless plug I'll make is um, due to my like love of, of travel and also realizing how fortunate I am to be American. Um, I have a nonprofit with two other young ladies who also really like travel. We're building schools in Cambodia. It's called the Hearts Company. Um, so check out the Hearts, heartsco.com on Google. Uh, you can reach out to me there as well if anyone wants to get in touch. Awesome. Any, uh, I was going to say last question on my end was going to be any, where did people find you? Huh. Um, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. I keep my, uh, Instagram and Facebook's, uh, PG 13 just to live my personal life. But, um, LinkedIn, Eric Southwell, uh, is the best place if you, if anyone wants to get in touch, talk about LinkedIn or anything like that. Awesome. Well, again, appreciate you coming on today and it was great chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Your Brand, Your Story podcast. Find us on social at The Data Outlier and our brand handle at Ingram Digital. To learn more about the podcast episode, go to www.yourbrandyourstorypodcast.com and continue the conversation or use the hashtag Your Brand, Your Story.